This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. They have survived Stalinism, the Cold War, the Afghan War, the end of the Soviet experiment, but who are the Vori, as Russia's organized crime class is known? Mark Galeotti is the go-to expert on organized crime in Russia and has consulted governments and law enforcement agencies around the world. His latest book is The Vori, Russia's Super Mafia. Mark, thank you for coming on today. Oh, my, my great pleasure. So let's start uh, with the <laughs> the love or lack of love that the Vores seem to get in pop culture. Why are the uh, the mafia, for example, much more well known in America in particular? They get video games, movies, TV shows, where the Vori don't seem to uh, get any of that love. Well, I mean, give them time. <laughs> no, I think the interesting thing is two two points. One is, I mean, for. For most Americans, the mafia is not something that they are going to encounter in their lives. Um, it's it's nicely, safely, um, you know, sort of secured behind the, the veil of history. Um, whereas for, for Russians, the Vori and organized crime is still much more recent, much more real. But also, I mean, they do appear quite a bit in, in, in pop culture. Um, there was a particular sort of two two films, Brat and Bratva, Brother and Brother Two, um, which which very became very popular, very almost viral. We would think of them, um, you know, which featured at the heart of a gangster. But even then, the, th- the key thing about the second film was that you had a Russian gangster going to America, where he proved that basically Russian gangsters were tougher than American gangsters. <laughs> and so I think this is one of the key points about. Sort of where where the Vori fit into the kind of the, the, the Russian popular imaginary. And there's two things really. One is that there is a kind of a slight sort of perverse satisfaction in that they have the the, the toughest gangsters and and the most corrupt officials around. And secondly, there is at least a sense that they are honest criminals, in the sense that look, they are gangsters. They make no bones about it compared with the dishonest criminals who wear suits and who wear uniforms and who are meant to be governing and protecting them and yet who are ripping them off left, right and center. There is at least something morally pure about the gangster who is just a gangster. And what is the the uh, presence of the Vori like here in the United States? They're here. They're, I mean, but on the other hand, I think one, one has to be clear that Russian organized crime has expanded worldwide. It's an amazingly global phenomenon, but it hasn't done so as conquerors. It hasn't tried to basically take over turf, except in a few very, very specific situations close to home or in the 1990s. Instead, it's globalized as basically service providers. It reaches out to all kinds of other gangsters in, in Europe, in the Americas, in the Middle East, wherever, and basically says, look, what do you need? And we can provide it. And so we see this. I mean, there are gangsters from Russia and elsewhere in the post-Soviet state, post-Soviet area in the United States. We've seen, for example, um, some massive Medicaid and Medicare frauds carried out by gangs, particularly of actually Armenian gangs, but with also involving Russians. We've seen betting syndicates and such like. But in the main, 
you don't really see the Russians because what they're doing is they're providing expertise, they're providing goodies, they are basically service providers, they are the criminal Walmart <laughs> for the local gangsters on the street corner in cities across the United States. And where did they come from? How did they get started in Russia? Um, and where where did they originate from? Put very simply, I mean, in a way, they're... Their real roots lie in the slums of Russia cities in the early 19th century, sorry, late 19th century, when Russia was going through an incredibly rapid and frankly rather brutal industrialization and urbanization. Um, and there was this criminal subcaste, shall we say, called the Vorovskoy Mir, the thieves' world. But this was very much just simply a, a subculture. Until the Bolshevik Revolution, and above all, until Joseph Stalin and his murderous campaign of industrializing, collectivizing, but above all, terrorizing Russia, the Soviet Union, uh, in this period, smashing any potential source of resistance, led to literally millions of Soviets being thrown into the gulag hard labor camps. Now, most of these were not political dissidents. They weren't criminals. They were just people who were at the wrong place at the wrong time. They laughed at the wrong joke, didn't laugh at the right joke. Uh, and in order to try and manage this huge influx of prisoners, what Stalin did was turn to the Vori. Now, the, the mainstream Vor culture had as one of its key rules was that you never, ever collaborated with the authorities. To do that was, was absolutely taboo. But nonetheless, there were many Vori who, frankly, saw the advantage of becoming a big man in the gulag, not having to work, having to be you know, able to live, quite frankly. And so what happened is a, a new class of, of Vori emerged who basically had this, this strong sort of sense of separation from legitimate society, but also was willing to collaborate with the state. And I think that is crucial. I think really Stalin was the crucial person creating the whole, the modern vor. Then when Stalin died, the gulags were opened up. These criminals went out and basically colonized the Soviet underworld. So that's, I think, essentially the roots. Industrialization and then terrorization. And when they first come out of the gulag into the, the you know, the, the regular world, let's say, um, what was their role um, in the everyday lives of an, of an average uh, citizen? Well, the answer is almost none. Um, this is the interesting thing. This, this is one of the reasons why, frankly, Western scholarship didn't consider the role of organized crime in the Soviet Union. A few emigre writers had actually tried to say, hey, there is an underworld, but, we, but in a way, we in the West had thought, look, how can there be organized crime in a police state? And it's true, they weren't really visible. But what happened was they, they burrowed into the system um, and what they acted was, the, in some ways, as the connective tissue between two much more important criminal groups. That was the corrupt party officials, because through the 60s and above all into the 70s and 80s, the Communist Party became mind-numbingly corrupt. And the black market entrepreneurs who provided the officials, but also ordinary Soviet citizens with whatever they needed. But they couldn't really connect with each other. So organized crime kind of emerged in the gap. And in, to an extent, also preyed on the black marketeers. So really, most ordinary Soviets never saw organized crime, really. They didn't really know it was there until, really, the 1980s and Gorbachev's reform program. And uh, what, is the, what is the general attitude in Russia now towards the Vori? 
Um, is it talked about? Is it ignored? Do people care? Oh, people care. I mean, again, it's interesting that we, we've seen some several shifts. I mean, I mentioned that really it was, it was under Gorbachev that ordinary Russians came across the border. But even then, they came across them at first, once again, as, as, as providers of goods and services, particularly you know, Gorbachev, when he was trying to reform and save the Soviet Union in the 1980s, a, a program that proved impossible. One of the things he did was launch an anti-alcohol campaign because absolutely alcoholism was a serious problem. But nonetheless, it, it was as well thought through and as effective as prohibition in the United States. And like prohibition, it was this extraordinary moneymaker for the gangsters. So in a way, the first time that for most Soviets they came across the Vori was not as thuggish exploiters shaking them down for money. It was rather as the guys who could get you booze. <laughs> so at first, in some ways, they were almost folk heroes. However, you know, very quickly they showed their true colours. They increasingly became sort of exploitative and predatory. Um, and and you know, in, in in the 1990s, which is a real, you know, after the Soviet Union had collapsed, a real wild age, an age of drive-by shootings and car bombings and such like. Um, you know, that was when when absolutely people realised how how terrible the Vori were and, and and how how dangerous. Nowadays, to an extent, they have been tamed. We we don't get the kind of widespread gangsterism um, that, that we saw then. But even so, I mean, I think Russians have got this strange, and, it, and I think, frankly, Americans would almost recognize this, this strange mix of horror and fascination. On the one hand, they, they regard the Vori as unpleasant predators. But on the other hand, they're also quite fascinated by them. And I mean, there are, for example, websites where people accumulate all the little the sightings and the information um, about gangsters, almost as if this is about sort of stalking pop stars and so forth. Um, you know, they're, they're, these are people whom, I mean, there are articles written in huge amounts that really goes into detailed, detailed information about exactly who was crowned, in other words, made a, a board of a zirconia thief within the code, who are the sort of senior gangsters, you know, who met with whom and such like. They, they are scrutinized as if they were celebrities, <laughs> even while they are also regarded as terrible problems. And what does the what does the structure of the Vori look like? Uh, f you know, in the mafia, there's families, there's crime families, things like that. Do the Voris have different sects? What does the leadership look like? Uh, within? I do quite a lot of consulting work for various police and law enforcement agencies uh, around the world about the Russians. And you know, let's face it, cops are very pragmatic people. They just want to know what they need to know in order to catch the bad guys, put them in prison, make the streets safer. And whenever we talk about the Russians, they very, very quickly go back to the sort of classic pyramid. They want to know, you know who is the godfather, who are the captains, the lieutenants and the foot soldiers and so forth. And I have to then sort of break it to them. That, ah, that's not really the way the Russians often work. I mean, a small local gang absolutely will be that kind of classic model of basically, a, you know, a usually moderately charismatic or effective, you know, uh, boss and, and, the, and the people he's recruited. But when you look at that, there's about, depending on how you count them, between 12 and 18 sort of large groupings that, that, that dominate the Russian underworld. These are actually positively postmodern. These are not carefully structured organizations. They're usually just kind of loose agglomerations of lots and lots of individuals and smaller groups and gangs and so forth. 
Um, I remember once actually talking to a, a kind of a bunch of, of law enforcement analysts who, after I was trying to describe this, one of them just threw up its hands in horror and said, basically, it's a bunch of Facebook friends. <laughs> and there's some truth in that. The way the Russians work is that they actually operate in these groups quite loosely. And then when a, sort of an opportunity comes up, the network gives them the, the collection of contacts. So, you know, you might think, okay, suddenly I've encountered someone who, I don't know, is really eager to sell some heroin in the Netherlands. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, okay, who do I know who can get me heroin? Because one third of all the world's heroin passes through Russia. Um, you know, who do I know who can get me heroin? Who do I know who, let's say, has got friends who can get this to the Netherlands? Who do I know who can get me get this past customs? You know, all that kind of thing. So anyway, then what you do is you bring together your group, you exploit the opportunity, and then usually everyone goes their separate way once they've had got their cut of, of the profit. So, it, so it, it's these very, very loose networks of, of groups, which means that on the one hand, they're incredibly opportunistic. They're very, very entrepreneurial. They can respond very quickly to new opportunities in a way that is sort of the classic mafia family. You've got to you know, run things up the chain of command and get the godfathers okay and so forth. None of that sort of applies. But on the other hand, it's precisely that much more chaotic than a, a, a traditional system. It can't focus its resources. It's more prone to have internal conflicts and such like. So it, it, it's a very different model, but it very much works, particularly internationally, for this kind of approach of basically being the world's gangster service providers, because it means that you can very, very quickly respond to whatever anyone wants. And with this sort of loose uh, conglomeration uh, setup, how do they sort of wield their influence or wield their power? Well, look, in, in Russia itself, um, whatever else one can say about Vladimir Putin, in his own way, he has not broken organized crime, but house-trained it. He's demonstrated to them, as sort of a time-honored fact, that that, that is the, that the state is the biggest gang in town. And, you know, they can carry on doing their crime so long as they don't do anything that looks like a challenge to the state. Now, what this means is they can still be violent, but they better not do it in the kind of indiscriminate and high-profile ways of, say, the 1990s. So what we, we see is a mix of violence. I mean, there are still lots of contract killings in Russia, but they tend to be quite precisely focused and often highly skilled. I mean, there was one guy, um, a, a Georgian gangster called Kvantrushvili, who was trying to basically make himself the number one mobster of Moscow. And when it was decided that he had to go, um, you know, someone was tasked with taking him out. It was known that Kvantrushvili wore body armor under his suit. And therefore, this guy with a sniper rifle put two shots through his left shoulder so that basically it bypassed the, the, the bulletproof vest and, 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 and ended his day and ended his bid to be Moscow's godfather. So there is still violence, but it's highly targeted. But a lot of it nowadays is, is, is done kind of almost behind the scenes because the biggest gangsters in, in Russia, the, the real senior figures, the so-called authority, authorities, they, they're not the kind of tattooed hard men that we know from, from the movies. Nowadays, they are basically sharp-suited criminal entrepreneurs. They're people who have a portfolio of interests from the totally illegitimate, you know, the, the heroin trafficking, the people trafficking, and so forth, through to the basically legitimate. They're usually also involved in politics, charity, society, all that. So anyway, when they need to actually assert their authority, sometimes they'll turn to their, the Russian word is a, is a torpedo, 
for 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 a hired killer. <laughs> um, but also, often they can do it through state structures. You know, their their good friend and neighbour, the judge, or the the local mayor whose campaign they bankroll. All of these, or even you know, the chief of police who might well be their brother-in-law. You know, all of these provide ways in which they can assert their authority through through other means. So as I said, it's actually uh, often quite a quite a sophisticated way of doing something that is very unsubtle and quite brutal. And I think we often have this sort of idea that the that organized crime and the government get intertwined in these in these ways. Um, are are the Vori intertwined in Russian politics? It sounds like they have these relationships, and if they are intertwined, is it more on a local? You know, I know the police chief, or I know a local judge, or are they are they um, involved one way or the other in in larger politics? You'll still find a lot of Russians, and indeed a lot of people critical of Russia outside the country, who essentially think of the whole Russian state as basically one big mafia, and Putin as, as the Godfather in chief. I don't really see that, that that fits. There is massive levels of corruption within Russian officialdom. Um, and you know a lot of the people around Putin make a lot of money off state contracts and that kind of thing. But that's different from what we would think of as organized crime. And if anything, actually, whereas in the 1990s, um, it was, you know, I mean, there, there, were, there were scenes, for example, of... Um, Boris Yeltsin, the president at the time, actually watching tennis next to this guy, Van Trishvili, whom, whom I mentioned, you know, an out-and-out mobster. Those kind of connections are, are actually much, much less now. So, yes, when we see the real connections, it is much more on a local level. It's much more um, outside of Moscow. Um, in some ways, what we have is a whole variety of levels. There is organized crime as we'd understand it. There is this kind of blended crime and politics that is particularly important in the regions and in various cities. Then there is sort of national level politics, which is deeply corrupt, but but separate. And then there is Putin himself, who frankly, although he is vastly rich um, through a whole variety of, of schemes and scams, I think nowadays he's more interested in politics and his historic legacy rather than just making another billion dollars. Now let's turn to the the Vora themselves for a little bit. One of the things that they're the the, the members are known for, um, at least at the lower levels, it sounds like, are these tattoos. Um, and in fact, on the cover of your book here is a gentleman covered in tattoos. Um, I think other organized crime groups do this as well. I think of the yakuza off the top of my head um, in Japan. What what are the tattoos for? What do they mean? And where did the idea of tattoos come from? As far as the Vori using them? Well, for the Vori, and absolutely, this was one of the kind of really central and, and distinctive elements, even distinctive compared with the Yakuza, who I'll get on to. Um, the notion of using tattoos, in effect, as a, a language that was actually written on the skin, um, really dates back to the 19th century. You've got to remember, you know, this, this is an organized crime fraternity that was emerging in a, in a society in, in dramatic change, huge numbers of people moving to the cities and so forth, but also with a high level of illiteracy. And so the tattoos... They did several things. One is they made this point. I mentioned that the Vor culture was sort of to actually separate itself from mainstream society. 
So their tattoos were visible in a way that the Yakuza's are not. The Yakuza make a point of tattooing so that actually when they put on a suit, no one knows they're Yakuza. Well, the Vori is not like that. You know, when, when you start having people who have like barbed wire tattooed across their forehead, <laughs> you know they're making a point. They're making a point that says, fear me, I am not like you and I despise you. At the same time, the tattoos were, were basically someone's resume on the skin. Um, you could read tattoos to see where they'd been to prison, what crimes they committed, what their particular views were, where they fit within the criminal hierarchies. All of this was reflected in tattoos. And at a time in which Russian, the language, was still incredibly shattered by dialect, so that a, a Russian from one village might well be, have trouble talking to a, a, a Russian from a village you know, 100 miles away. Um, the tattoo language was actually strikingly homogenous across the country. So, you know, when if you saw someone with a particular tattoo on his knuckle or whatever, you knew that he was indeed a cat burglar. And that therefore, if you were looking for a cat burglar for, for, for some operation, then here, this is a guy for you. So this, this is the key thing. It, it was both a way of showing membership in an organization, in a subculture, and in the process rejecting mainstream society and it was also your, your criminal resume. And a way, obviously, in which you can also distinguish yourself from police informants and so forth, because who actually wants to have a tattoo of a stag um, done across their chest just in order to, to fit in? Nowadays, though, I should say that this, this tattoo language is basically falling into uh, disuse. Um, nowadays, the modern Vor doesn't want to stand out. He doesn't want to actually emphasize his rejection from society because he wants to be able to travel. You know, if you turn up to try and get a, you know, the U.S. consulate to try and get a visa and you have, you know, barbed wire tattooed across your forehead, then that's the kind of thing that might possibly get a consular officer thinking twice. You know, so they want to basically now sort of be more subtle. But also the old codes are very much dying down. I mean, actually... I mean, this is one, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I was glad to get this book out, because actually the distinctiveness of the Vori is beginning to decline. They're beginning to become more like other gangsters. And nowadays, I mean, last time I was in, in Moscow, I, I saw a guy at a very hipster bar who had a tattoo of a spider on his hand, um, which actually, in, in Vor terms, the, what he was showing was that he was a pickpocket. Hmm. Um, and, and talking to him, I mean, he clearly had absolutely no idea <laughs> that this was this was the meaning of that tattoo. He just thought it was a cool tattoo. Well, back in the day, 20 years ago, if you'd been drinking in a bar with that tattoo and it had come to some people's attention and they realized that, you know, you had a, a Vor tattoo that you weren't entitled to, the best you could hope for is they'd be presenting you with a razor blade so that you could actually cut it off your own skin. The worst is, is even worse than that. Those days have fortunately, for that particular hipster, gone. How, in the modern day, how does one become a, a Vore? How do you join up? Um, do they find you? Do you find them? Is it, a, is it a, an acquaintance thing? How, how does that happen? Yeah, I mean, nowadays, uh, I mean, certainly, uh, as I said, they're, they're getting less kind of distinctive. And some of the old traditions, which will be basically that you became a Vore, not least by spending time in, in, in a prison camp, um, is... Less, less the case nowadays. But still, I mean, yeah, on the whole, it's, it's done by acquaintance. It's, it's people who you grew up with, people who you served in the military with, people who you spent time in prison with, who kind of can put in a good word. 
and and what you have to do is you you show that you're you're willing to to join the life. I mean, basically, there's a usual kind of period of kind of apprenticeship. You're you're a wannabe um, until you've shown that you're trustworthy, shown that you're useful. You'll often be kind of set some various tasks just just to sort of demonstrate your your chops, and then they will bring you in. But again. Once upon a time, becoming member of a vor meant you had to swear all kind of oaths. You had to learn the criminal language and so forth. That's much less the case these days. They they, they do have a little, little bit of a ritual, but um, increasingly it's becoming much more casual. And are are the vori uh, growing? Are they declining? Are they staying about the same? What's the trajectory? I mean, I think the honest answer is that. They're neither growing nor declining, but they are changing. Um, I think what we've seen is this old subculture, um, which gave them a lot of strength and meant that they were kind of powerful and vicious and were able to take advantage of the period of chaos in the 80s and 90s, is no longer as useful in a modern, networked, globalized world. And so what we're now seeing is, I mean, even frankly, people are often just not even calling themselves Vori. Now, that doesn't mean they're going away. What it just simply means is that there's no more interest in keeping yourself separate from the rest of society. What we're now getting is is, is a new generation gangster who precisely is essentially, we could think of him as a totally amoral capitalist. He doesn't join the organized crime world because he wants to cock a snoot at society, because he doesn't fit or because he doesn't have any other skills. He might well actually be smart and educated and well-traveled and so forth. He joins this world basically because he wants to make money quickly and easily and enjoys asserting authority. So what we're actually getting is not just a kind of a, a more cosmopolitan and, 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 and switched on kind of um, criminal world, but also what we could call much more of a white-collar one, because the Russians particularly, I mean, they have moved into cybercrime, they've moved into fraud, they've moved into various kind of, um, you know, banking crimes that don't involve masks and sawn-off shotguns. Um, and I think this is it. They, they are incredibly quick in how they adapt to new circumstances. They are still, they are by no means the world's most powerful gangsters. That is still, frankly, the Italian organized crime groups. But on the other hand, what I think we can say about the Russians is they are the world's most entrepreneurial organized crime groups. And is there a feeling among maybe some of the the uh, the more traditional members of the Vori that as they become more sort of white collar um, in it as a, as a capitalistic endeavor to make money, is there a feeling or a sense that they're sort of abandoning what the Vori was originally about, which was to not be like that and to and to just embrace the fact that they were these sort of blue collar criminals? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it, it's. Let's be perfectly honest. It's it's the kind of plaints that you'll hear from so many different communities. Oh, the kids these days—they don't know what it's really like. Um, but you know, but understandably, the kids these days don't feel that they have to show how tough they are by spending ten years in a hard labour camp somewhere sort of north of the Arctic Circle. Um, yeah, I mean, there there is that that sense of, of an old world that is dying. Just as you, it's, let's be honest, you encounter it within the world of the Cosa Nostra families in New York and so forth. It's one of the reasons why they kind of they love the Sopranos. <laughs> 
was it was almost like it, it, it had that elegiac sense of chronicling a world that, that was disappearing. So yes, there there is that sense. But but let's be honest, the the that generation is is dying out or retiring or moving into a sort of gangster emeritus status in which they get a lot of respect and their name still counts for something, but no one actually expects them to, to do crime. I mean, the last of the really sort of serious Russian gangsters of that kind of old order was a chap by the name of um, Vyacheslav Ivankov, um, who went by the sort of criminal nickname, they all had nicknames, uh, of Yaponchik, Little Jap. Um, who actually came to the States um, in the early 1990s. Um, in some ways, I mean, he, it was presented to him by the gangster leaders of Moscow as a great sort of um, honor for him, go and be almost our ambassador to Brighton Beach and, 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 and the sort of the Russian, ethnic Russian organized crime world there. But in fact, they were just trying to get rid of him because he was all, even by that point, he was a dangerous dinosaur. Anyway, he came to the States, he carried out crimes, the FBI caught him, and then in due course, after he'd served his time in the States, he went back to Russia, and shortly thereafter, he, he was he was murdered, and we still don't know exactly by whom, but uh, again, in, in my book, I, I raise some of the theories about who. But the interesting thing was, I mean, Yaponchik's funeral, I mean, I, I've actually been to his, his gravestone, which is some sort of massive, pompous thing. Um, it was one of these classic gangster funerals. You know, the, 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 the route lined with carnations, lots and lots of, 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 you know, big, meaty guys in black suits with their short-skirted um, other halves, shall we say. Um, even sort of bouquets, which literally actually sort of said from the such-and-such such brotherhood and, and, and so forth. But the interesting thing was actually... And obviously, I, you know, in, in the course of my research, I, I talked to people in, in the organized crime world as well as within the, the police world. But if you talk to the people in the organized crime world, especially the younger ones, they went along and they paid their respects. But even while they were burying Yaponchik, they were actually exulting because they felt they were also burying that old Vor world. Okay, well, the book is The Vori, Russia's Super Mafia. Mark, thanks for coming on. My great pleasure. That does it for this week's episode. You can find more at yalebooks.yale.edu or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite app. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating.